We gotta go to the bullpen. Welcome to the Highland Bullpen, the all-new podcast bringing America's pastime to Scotland shores. It doesn't matter if you're a Hall of Famer heading for Cooperstown or you're fresh out of the minor leagues, this is the podcast for you. Hello listeners, wherever you are, and a warm welcome to the Highland Bullpen, where you're getting the very best baseball opinions from our four lads from Scotland. Alan, Dave Jr. and Yorkshire Dave, it's been another fantastic week in baseball. Maybe not fantastic for all of our teams, but this season is really hotting up as we enter the final four weeks. So to kick us off, or to lead us off, I should say, the Seattle Mariners uh, have been teasing me tempting me all season, but I reckon our, our wildcard hopes were finally killed off yesterday when we managed to blow a lead in the ninth inning and eventually lose 5-4 to the Astros. And that was one of those matches and one of those series, that three-game series, where we really needed a sweep to keep our kind of hopes alive of winning the AL West. And it didn't, didn't quite happen for us. We were kind of beaten out of sight in the first game of the series, 11-2, had a chance to emerge with a series win, but that 5-4 defeat was a real a real heartbreaker. And I guess having won so many close games all season, the Mariners, your luck's going to run out at some point and you're going to be in the wrong end of, of one of those. So the Astros look nailed on for the division title and looking at the various divisions, I think it'll be a stretch for the Mariners to make their way into wildcard contention. But... Uh, Wildcard contention has not been something that's been troubling the Detroit Tigers for a while, Alan, but I know you're still following them closely uh, and already looking forward to the next MLB season. So how the Tigers been getting on? It's an odd thing at this stage. You look forward to next season, but that's, I guess that's how it is with the teams that struggle. You always have a little bit of hope something's coming down the road. There was a while... A few weeks back, I was probably talking optimistically about the Tigers getting to 500. I think we looked at their August schedule and thought, yeah, they could do something good and spectacular here. It's not really come to fruition. Uh, The young lads coming in pitching have done well, but missed over a season. You're going to miss Matthew Boyd and Spencer Turnbull uh, with with long-term injuries. So that's been tough for the old Tigers. Uh, we were competing, I guess, as well. When you talk about getting to 500, you're also hoping there's a point where you're you're going to get second place and beat the the Indians into second place. But we're now five games behind the Indians, so it's going to take something spectacular for that to really change. And, and we're only two games ahead of the the good old Royals as well. So what was looking good and what was heading towards 500, uh, it's not really happening now, I'm afraid. So. Uh, 50-50 record at home, well, 35 wins, 35 defeats. Uh, on the road, 30 wins, 40 defeats. Uh, that's probably the sign of where it's it, it struggled. Uh, I, I don't know that this is there's probably a very simple answer to this question, but in terms of the wild cards, uh, that then 
looks like the two wild cards in the American League will come from the same division. Is that common? Well, um, in the American League, uh, it, it, it could happen. I'm not sure about that. But, you know, I wouldn't rule out Seattle just now. Toronto is making a place. It's actually getting quite congested. But, yeah, there are um, sort of four teams in you know, the Rays are probably going to win the the, uh, the division. Then then it's the Yankees, Red Sox, game and a half behind, aren't they? The Yankees, and two games I think to the good for the second wild card spot. But um, Toronto has come into the the, uh, the game. They're they're only just a couple of games behind the uh, Red Sox, I think. Yeah, and I say the the Seattle. Still in with a chance, and of course, Oakland is still there. So, uh, 20 odd games to go, isn't there? So, it can it can still happen. It can, no, I appreciate that, Yorkshire Day. But I think for it would take both the, the Yankees and the, the Red Sox. Although, as, as I mentioned last week, they do play each other uh, in one of the last series of, of the year. So, obviously, somebody will be losing in those games. So, there is the opportunity, I guess. But it's is kind of last chance saloon, I think, for both Toronto and Seattle. They really have to make a have one of those kind of nine and one type series yeah. of uh, you know go on one of those stretches. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not impossible, but certainly very comfortable are the White Sox there and, and Dave Junior. Last ten games, you're you're seven and three, so it must be reassuring to see you're you're keeping up that momentum. You keep chalking up the victories. So presumably you'd want to keep that going and and not lose any of that ahead of the the postseason. Yeah, thanks, Richard. It looks, I think it looks more comfortable than it feels just now. Uh, seven and three doesn't really feel quite reflective of, of where things have been. We've, we've lost really three out of our our five starting pitchers just now, um, and you know the bullpen's not been doing too great, and we've started suffering a couple of injuries out in the outfield as well. Um, so again, the, the great luxury of that is that Tony Larusa can he, he can manage the squad, and he's, he's been able to bring some guys up uh, from the minor leagues to help out. And one of those guys last night, Jimmy Lambert. Uh, so it was a real touching moment for him. He uh, he's been in, I think he was drafted from the White, sorry, drafted by the White Sox um, five or six years ago. Spent a few years in the lower leagues as as players tend to do. Um, and then suffered, he had to go through Tommy John surgery. So I think that's always, from what I can tell, it's really debilitating for pitchers and a lot of them don't make it back. So he he was called up last night um, to play, you know, a really, really good Oakland A's team just now who are still, still in that wildcard mix along with yourselves. Um, and he got his first ever win last night and he was really emotional. He said after the game, the beer shower that he went through might might very well have been one of the biggest any in the squad had seen for, for quite some years. So they must think of him really well, but it's a lot of these guys that have performed for the White Sox in, in the absence of some established names. They've came through this year, so last night could have been really tricky. They've taken on the A's. I'm sorry for the noise in the background. Uh, not the ice cream van. Uh, you know, these guys have came up to the big leagues and, and Played, more than played their part, which is fantastic. Um, and as you said, it's it's not that you're trying to coast now to the end of the season because 
there's that second seed spot up for grabs and it means that at the moment it looks like the White Sox will play the Astros uh, in the postseason. And going to the Astros to play four games is a lot different than hosting them for four games. Um, you know, it's a very, uh, quite a different stadium when you look at it. We, we haven't done too well there over the years. I think the, the turf is artificial. You would rather have that home game advantage. Um, like all, all the teams in postseason, they'll be, they'll be doing the, the very best. So there's absolutely something there to fight for. Um, Houston have got a really tough run in in September. So I'm hoping that they can drop I was going to say a few points, but I'm hoping they can um, lose a few games along the way. I'm not sure if you guys are, are playing them any points. Um, but our magic number, which I may rely on the three of you to bail me out on here, the magic number for Chicago sits at 15. Uh, and that's, from what I'm led to believe, I think that's the number of wins you need to then clinch the title. However, with Cleveland, I think if Cleveland, who are our nearest rivals, if they drop a game, and White Sox winning the same night, it's almost like a, a six-pointer. You know, it, you might pick up two games in the one night. Um, but as that, uh, again, I've, I can't claim to be a huge White Sox fan that's been embedded in things over the years, but I'm sure that uh, all those fans will be looking forward to clinching a, a divisional title and, and perhaps going on from there uh, to try and get the league pennant as well. So, no, it's, it's really good times, Richard. Excellent, great stuff. And and for the Red Sox as well, uh, Yorkshire Dave, it's been a high-scoring couple of days you're on the wrong end of a 21-run shootout uh, with the Rays yesterday. Uh, sorry, on Monday, as we record here tonight. And and you another 19 runs in the most recent game today. And unfortunately, the Sox only claimed seven of those as well. So you're, you're pitching struggling to contain the Rays, I guess, Yorkshire Dave, but they've got they've got some real offence as well. So perhaps no great surprise. Oh, yeah. The good news for Boston is that after tonight, they do not have to play the Tampa Bay Rays again uh, in the regular season, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, the Red Sox has a losing record against the Rays. I think they're 7-11 just now. And obviously they play them again tonight. Uh, one game to play. So, and this was after after Boston swept the Rays in the uh, three the the second series of the season back in April, three game series. So um, really, they've had a tough time of it. The relentless Rays, as I uh, as I'm calling them. Actually, uh, I think the Red Sox have shown some really terrific resilience um, recently. You know, given their much publicised COVID issues, they'd um, they'd made a few moves and juggled the the bullpen as best they can. They 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 rallied to split a four game series um, um, away at Tampa um, after losing the first two, and then they they won the first two games against Cleveland uh, back in Fenway. Uh, so they had four in a row, and then the other night. Um, you know that game you you mentioned that was it finished eleven ten to Tampa. Boston was seven one ahead in that game, and um, there was an unfortunate uh, defensive play, which uh, I say it was counted as an error, but um, it was one of those really sunny days. I think it was an afternoon game, and uh, the centre field. I won't name him because he's probably my favourite Red Sox player and it was the sort of um, 
I think the bases were loaded. And, you know, it looks like one of those sort of almost, not exactly a routine play, but got his glove to it, but the sun got in his eyes and um, he missed it. And it went sort of horribly wrong. And last night, actually, is it 12-7? That actually flatters the Red Sox. I think they were they were down one and got five or six runs in the, in the, in the last innings. So you've got to give Tampa the due there, look, a, a really good team, good hitting team and, um, you know, all-round pitching is not bad. So, yeah, I, I think that, that, so, yeah, having said all that, the Red Sox are still in it there with uh, two, you know, they could have gone ahead of the Yankees had they won that game that was 7-1 up when I think, um, and the Yankees themselves, I think they've lost their last four, um, including two against um, against Baltimore, surprisingly. So it's getting quite congested, I think. With only, I think Red Sox have only got 20, 21 games to go. So, and they've got some tough fixtures. The three-game series in Seattle. Uh, played Dave's White Sox as well. Um, uh, in the south side, yeah. there I go, and also we've got three games against the Yankees. So uh, there's a lot to happen yet, but uh, I'm still happy where we are, in with a chance, and I'm not pointing any criticism at uh, the manager or the players. I think uh, you know they're in a, a pretty good position considering everything, and um, yeah. They're still looking pretty good for the playoffs. Yeah. And I have to say, like, obviously the bullpen bros, with three of us, our teams are going up against each other this week, whether the White Sox facing the Red Sox and the Red Sox facing the Mariners as well. We clearly need to get a neutral opinion on this, and that only leaves one of the bros. Alan? I think you're probably right, Richard. I think um, the wild card places are going to be the Yankees and the Red Sox. I assume that means they then play each other in the wild card playoff. Uh, a big game to start the, the the playoffs, if that's what it is. Uh, the White Sox aren't under any threat, uh, and, I, and I hope this year they manage to go a wee bit further than last year's uh, entry into the into the playoffs. The Mariners, yeah, they've. I mean, I've noticed a bit of it through following the fantasy league team and I've probably got to know your teams a wee bit better there's I think a few of our pitchers have struggled in, in the last sort of week or so uh, some high numbers have been posted uh, against them in the in the old stats line uh, I'd be intrigued to know from aficionados of baseball does this happen towards the end of the season do do your players yeah there's a lot of injuries out there but do players are they carrying knocks does it get harder f- for them as the season goes on, do they get a bit more jaded or tired? Do they feel a bit of extra pressure then as well as we get to this situation? And and perhaps if they're playing some of the weaker teams, and Dave was mentioning there the, the Orioles, a couple of wins against the Yankees, are, are the weaker teams a bit less inhibited? Are they ready to go? Are they blooding a few players? So Dave, Dave you might have some thoughts on that. Yeah, um, certainly Cora, the, the Red Sox manager's, you know, he does rest players. Um, I presume other teams do. I haven't really kept tabs on that. But 
for instance, uh, one of the games, I can't remember whether it was last night or the night before, uh, Rafi Devers was given the day off. But, and he did, he did say, because I think he has got criticism, you get criticised if you lose a game and you've done something that, um, you know, looks a bit different and you've lost the game. It's okay if you rest somebody and you win. You've been very smart. If you rest Martinez, DH, and uh, you lose the game, then you, you, all of a sudden you get criticism. So he says he's giving Devers a day off, and that's his last day off till the end of the regular season. But, you know, he did bring him in. He pinched it for him. Um, but that's all he did. He took him straight out again. So he didn't feel he just came in. He didn't actually get a hit, but he came in at position when um, there was guys on base and, um, you know, he's obviously a great hitter. But uh, so he came in for one bat on his day off. <laughs> so, but it is interesting to see how they do. If you're in contention, though, um, yeah, I think the running, there'll be very few, you know, they will stretch it and you might see the ace pitcher pitching more, either more often or more um, pitching more pitches, going deeper in the games. And uh, because, you know, there's not, you're not saving yourself or anything. Oh, you, you've got to get to the playoffs and yeah. then it's, uh, you, you know, you're in the mix. I think you make a good point there as well, York, Steve, about the kind of the timing, timings, everything in baseball, and actually one of the teams who I really thought would do well this season, but who haven't, but have hit form at the right time, are the New York Mets. I don't know if you saw that Pete Alonso became the second, uh, reached 100 home runs, became the second fastest in history to reach 100 home runs there when the Mets beat the, the Marlins uh, just the other night there. And they're now only a couple of games off the, the division because that's a really tight division. Uh, at the top of you know the NL East there, the Braves who were leading, falling away quite a bit. Their form's not been great. Phillies are, are strong, but the Mets are only a game behind there as well. And I think Pete Alonso's a hell of a player. I mean, 100 home runs in only just over 300 games is is pretty impressive going. The yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was in. He was in the uh, home run. He's uh, some uh, committed individual. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'll be interested to see if the Mets do end up just kind of timing the run perfectly. I guess it's like a an athletics when you see a big pack and somebody or in, or in horse racing Yorkshire Dave, which I know is something you enjoy yourself when a horse yeah. would just stay in the right position, steer clear of trouble, and then just in that final furlong, just find a space and, and go for it. I wonder if the Mets might just be that team which would give them a real momentum boost going into the yeah. postseason. Yeah, I hope they make it. You know, obviously... Uh, I think we've spoke about this before that the you know when they were top of the division, you know that they had some unusual numbers. I think you mentioned it yourself that their um, their runs scored were amongst the lowest, wasn't it, or something like that? They, you know, certainly like their starting pitching was outstanding with Degrom doing his stuff, and then he he was still injured, didn't he? I think. Um, so they're doing well without their, you know, if anyone is an ace, it's him. Um, but, you know, they, they, they have invested big, haven't they, in the team and 
I, you know, I think they need to finish strong and and get there to, uh, you know, to keep it going. And hopefully, then I don't know how badly injured Degrom is, but yeah, it would be great to see them in it and him um, him pitching in the playoffs. Yeah, and of course, Stephen Cohen, their owner, he was the one that knocked Allen's man off the top spot as the richest owner in baseball. So, given the amount he's invested in the Mets this season, I think making that that postseason has still got to be still got to be the aim. Now, Yorkshire Dave mentioned unusual numbers there, and I think yeah, your colleague and fellow bullpen bro Dave Junior has a very unusual and possibly unique number that he'd like to tell us about. Yeah, so this is this was brought to my attention by my son, who again is a, a, a quite a fleeting interest in baseball when it suits, um, like most kids. So um, back in 1951, if you can cast your mind that far back, and I won't make any jokes this week, um, the St. Louis Browns were going through a real sticky spell. And I think their owner at that point, I recognise his name, I'm not sure if you guys do, uh, Bill Veek. Bill Veek. Uh, Bill Veek. Uh, so at that moment in time, St. Louis Browns, who I'm sure have evolved into... Um, a kind of different name at this point. They they were the worst team in baseball at that moment in time. They were really crying out for for crowds for that investment coming back into the team. And Mister Veek must have been a little bit of a pioneer, just thinking outside the box. So there was a game against Allen's Detroit Tigers. I don't know if you were there or not, Allen. Um, but the game's playing out. Playing out throughout the course of the evening. I when... was celebrating my 18th, so I wasn't old enough. <laughs> <laughs> when all of a sudden, uh, the manager of the of St. Louis opts to make a change and put in a pinch hitter. So, who strides up to the plate but Eddie Gadel? G-A-E-D-E-L. There's a little bit of recognition in Dave's face here. Um I don't know if he knew Eddie in, in case at all, or if he was Eduardo, I'm not too sure. So the reason that he strutted up to the plate is that Eddie stood at three foot seven and weighed in at a mere 60 pounds. Um, and that day he wore, they, they couldn't find him a jersey, but he wore one of the bat boy, the you know, the bat boy's jerseys, the ball boy, effectively. And the whole idea behind this is a bit of a publicity stunt from the, the owner of the club. Is Again, for those of you not in the know with baseball, and I'll probably get this wrong, but if, to the casual fan, if you watch a baseball game live, generally on TV, there's a, a floating rectangle on the screen to show you where the ball um, would generally be considered a strike, the strike zone. Um, now, again, this comes back to umpires and the... Yeah, you you can get frustrated with them at times, but the incredible job they do to to gauge what a strike is and what isn't. Um, so that strike zone is roughly the width of the plate, and also goes from the batter's, I believe it's the shoulders, roughly around about the shoulder area, to the waist, uh, around about the belt of the batter. Uh, I'm sure one of the guys will correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. So it's nice for us as the kind of casual viewer on TV to see this box floating there, but the referee doesn't. So the umpire doesn't. He doesn't see a floating box. They don't see curveballs coming in and gauging at what point a slider hits the deck. So these guys do a great job. But anyway, 
come back to the story, the idea is that Eddie's strike zone, because going from his shoulder to his waist is a whole lot shorter than for the likes of us. So he was given explicit instructions from the owner, do not swing. And apparently there were some threats made um, <laughs> for his um, for his life. Do not swing, we'll shoot you. We need you to get the tiniest stance possible because how hard is it going to be for a pitcher from to get a strike? So lo and behold, four balls later, literally four balls, four foul balls, um, and he is, poor Eddie has walked to first base. So it would have been so interesting to see the reaction of both teams, uh, of the crowd, of the umpires. I'm sure uh, things would have been pretty heated on the night. Uh, at first base, um, Eddie was taken out of the game and replaced by a pinch runner, given that his wee legs might not have made second base very, very quickly. Uh, the next day, you know, word spread to the MLB and they were furious. They were absolutely off the rockers and his contract was voided the next day. Uh, apparently, there's parts of that story lend itself to um, how contracts now need to be signed um, in in advance. Uh, they need to be approved by the by the commissioner. Now, I'm sure he's got a team, or sorry, he or she has a team to do this for them. But um, contracts need to be approved in advance because of what happened with Eddie. Uh, so I just I thought that's a fantastic record. It means that he's got a one thousand percent record of getting on base. So uh, I, I found that really really quite interesting. Apparently he's he's got a spot at the Hall of Fame. His jersey is, is there for everyone to see. Um, but I'm not sure if uh, you know, Dave, have you heard about Eddie's story before? Or have you came across it? Any thoughts? I, do you know what, Dave, I have, and that was absolutely fantastic how you put that together. It is, uh, it is strange that uh, this last week or so I've been, I've been working on something that was going to mention to, uh, to the, the, the podcast um, on, you know, on a similar subject. And, you know, because I started off watching baseball in the in the early 90s and getting interested in it and you know you, you know yourselves you start trying to learn the rules and the strike zone was very interesting and i had it in my mind that somebody had said or had read somewhere that in the past because the strike zone is personal to to the player that um you know unscrupulous owners had employed, shall we say, gentlemen of diminutive stature before. Uh, but I didn't know the story. And then it came back to me recently when I was watching a game. Um, it was uh, Red Sox and Yankees. And they were talking about the, the strike zone. I think it was Den on the on NESN. I think it was Dennis Eckersley, the, the, the great Red Sox um, uh, pitcher who was talking about the strike zone in particular, and Aaron Judge was at that, and he says, well, it's a, it's a big strike zone. I said, yeah, that's, what, that's what's that's been bothering me for ages. And this, like you say, this superimposed rectangle, which hovers above home plate, and if I'm right in my memory, the bottom part of the strike zone is the bottom of the batsman's knee, I think until quite recently, it changes. It's changed quite a lot over the years. I think it was until 
quite recently, the 90s or not that long ago, it was the top of the knee. But the top part of the strike zone is, I think, the midpoint, and I'm doing this on memory, uh, the midpoint from the top of the shoulders or maybe the oxters, as we say in Scotland, uh, and the midway point between that and the top of the pants, like the belt. And it's um, in the batsman's normal at-bat stance. So, it, and I thought, well, I don't have a, I'm going to maybe ask you to do something, Dave, uh, when you're next watching again, because I'm pretty sure you've got your, quite a large screen TV. We, we've just got like a pretty, uh, you know, straightforward, it's almost not much bigger than the laptop. But I thought I'm going to test this because I don't notice the strike zone changing for the batter. But so I actually, sadly, I got a ruler out, froze the frame when Aaron Judge was batting, right? <laughs> and I think, again, I'm going from memory, I, I sort of had started making notes about this in, you know, um, and I think it was like 25 millimetres on my uh, screen. And then other batters came in, and uh, Brett Gardner, who's, it, well, Aaron Judge six foot eight, isn't he, I think? And he's got quite an upright stance as well. So Brett Gardner came in. I think, you know, he's quite a bit small and crouches a bit. And uh, his was like 23 millimetres. The, the across part is the same for any part because it just goes up vertical from... So, uh, yes, yeah, so, and I, I did look up this uh, thing and I saw not in as much great detail as Dave has just given us, but I did see that um, story about uh, Eddie Gradle. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's great stuff, Dave. That's a terrific piece there, uh, Dave Jr. I've got to ask, surely Eddie should have been a shortstop? <laughs> I'll get my coat. Yeah, I was just going to say thanks for correcting on the, the kind of strike zone parameters, Dave. Um, something that I did hear them talk about in commentary so apparently that box that you see in TV, not that it matters to the umpires or the players on the pitch, but for the, the viewer, apparently the box that does appear, it is based, as Dave said, on your personal size, I suppose. But also the actual box that they show on TV is taken from your last 60 at-bats. Ah. So that's how, and you can actually sometimes see it resizing on the TV if you watch kind of closely enough. Um, but it will be not just, you know, because they don't get every player in the studio beforehand, you know, shove a measure against them and, and see exactly where it sits. So that is taken from each of your last 60 at-bats on a rolling sort of 60 basis to then give the viewer an idea of what the umpire is looking for. So it's not an exact strike zone. It's it's just to give you an idea. Yeah. That's what the umpire is looking at. Oh, that's excellent, because this is. Bit, I, I didn't find that explanation when I was looking, and uh, that's great. That's put that's put me at rest. And then you know, it's not definitive. Obviously, they they don't go to it like they're doing cricket or tennis or something like that. You can't sort of appeal against a strike. And I did see something on. Um, I follow the uh, Jerry Jerry Remy's sort of. Um, um, Facebook page and uh, somebody there, I didn't see the answer, but so it's obviously people do bother about it, people who followed about 
uh, followed baseball all their lives, just somebody had just said, how does the home play umpire call a low strike? How does he see the low strike? You know, he's crouching behind the, um, you know, the catcher. And, uh, yeah, I guess they use their experience and their knowledge and, yeah, but this is, uh, we've talked about this before as well, the, the, the framing art of, uh, of a catcher when they catch it, sort of, it's obviously low, but they just move, you know, their, as they catch the ball, they move their glove up into the, uh, into the strike zone to try and influence the, the umpire. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that, Dave. Uh, something that I found from the commentary teams. I've listened to a, a few of them now, mainly the Chicago guys, but everyone is really complimentary of the umpires. And to to back that up further, quite often the commentary teams will say, you know, if the fans or the players start getting on the umpires back, particularly about low strikes, as you said there, the commentary teams will very often say, you know, usually it's filled with ex-players. They will say, that's not in the umpire. You know, if you're in the fourth or fifth or sixth inning, by now, the players should have gauged yeah. that the umpire has a low strike zone. And that is not up to, you know, the players should have noticed that or they should be aware of that and dug out to say, listen, although your strike zone's normally here, it's actually an inch lower. Um, and that's up to the team, that's up to the players to identify that during the game. Again, it sounds quite alien to football fans. Literally moving the goalposts would be the, the alternate for that in our sport. You don't see that, that does, just doesn't happen. But for the strike zone in baseball, get a handle of what your umpire is doing early on. Again, like a referee in a football game, does the referee come out and give a yellow card after the first five minutes? Or does he let the game breathe? You've got to read that umpire to see how you can play that game. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great point, Dave. And, you know, in the era before technology and uh, calls in cricket, Certainly one of the most famous umpires uh, around Dickie Bird, the Yorkshireman Dickie Bird. He was uh, notorious for being very generous to batsmen. So to get an, a leg before wicket uh, dismissal, which would be similar to baseball and the strike zone. So uh, it obviously the idea in cricket, one of the ways of getting a batsman out is to hit the three stumps that are the batsman is protecting, which is akin to the, the strike zone, but sometimes they miss the ball and it hits their leg in front of the um, the stumps and they can be given out leg before wicket. But it has to, in the umpire's opinion, be going on to hit the stump and some, some, some of the, the umpires, you know, were notoriously very defensive of the batsman um, and would be very hard to get a, a leg before wicket decision from uh, the, well, acknowledged as the best umpire there's ever been, Dickie Bird. Yeah, and, and Dickie Bird, obviously, like yourself, Yorkshire Dave, Dickie Bird, a proud Yorkshireman from Barnsley, uh, I believe, and he's still in the strength at the tender age of 88. He's still going strong, Dickie Bird, but he was obviously... Famously a regular at Headingley, on many occasions umpiring at the home of Yorkshire cricket there, Yorkshire Dave. And I believe you were yourself at Headingley recently for a different type of sporting event. Oh, absolutely. What an amazing uh, event it was. Um, you know, you, Headingley, 
there's been there's been a stadium, a rugby ground and a cricket ground on that site since 1889, and it's seen so many great sporting events. You know, especially the cricket is world renowned. Was one of the great test venues and that 1981 Ashes series. And uh, but recently, it's um, just before the, the, the COVID lockdown, um, they needed to upgrade the facilities. And the, 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 the rugby ground and the cricket ground are back to back. And the north stand of the rugby ground is also the south stand uh, opposite the famous Kersal Lane end for the cricket ground. So they built a new stand there and the facilities overlook both stadiums. So we were, um, my brother and I were uh, invited to the corporate hospitality and it's now known as Emerald Headingley, the Emerald Suite. And what an amazing world-class facility it was. But the night itself, I I didn't realise just how big it was. I I thought that there was going to be a 10,000 crowd there. You know, it's transformed as you know, boxing and does this regularly, doesn't it? I think uh, Josh Warrington is a Leeds lad. He, he won the uh, the world title at Ellen Road. He's, he's Leeds United through and through, Leeds Rhinos, Leeds lad. And um, this was the first time, though, that they've had boxing at Headingley. And they transformed the stadium so they had the, the boxing ring um, in the middle of the, of the ground. And there was actually 20,000 there, and it was a raucous crowd. It was a fight, you know, it starts at five, five o'clock. It's a great undercard, you know, um, Nigel. I think you, you, you're a big boxing man, so if you'll know, Nigel Ben's son, Connor Ben, uh, was fighting um, Ireland's finest, um, Katie Taylor. She um, defended the crowd, it's undisputed. Lightweight is it crown I think, and then the the main event was Josh Warrington. Uh, I don't think I've seen a sporting event ramped up quite the way it was. You know, you probably I mean you can see it. I'll post I'll post the uh, um, the, the the official release from from Leeds Rhinos so that people can see it. You probably need to be from Leeds as well to to really appreciate it because because he's a big Leeds United fan. He came on to uh, which is now adopted by Leeds Ryan as well. The marching on together song, which dates back to Don Revie's 1960s 70s uh, Leeds, and then you thought, wow, that is amazing. And then you know, as if that wasn't, you thought it got to the limit, but the volume and intensity was turned up to 11. Uh, the Kaiser Chiefs Leeds band, I predict a riot, kicked in. And I was a little bit worried that might be prophetic. But, <laughs> it, you know, it was great. Obviously, the fight itself, um, you can't predict what's going to happen in sport, can you? And boxing, especially. And um, started off, he had a good first round, I think. Yeah. Second round was okay. Um, but during that, in the middle of that, there was an accidental clash of heads. Uh, you could you could tell straight away that uh, the young Mexican lad who had beaten him um, in February 2021 um, was, you know, really in trouble. And 
you know, his, his, his corner really tried valiantly to get him back, but then there was a, um, the doctor was called in, there was a close-up of him, and you could see it was a real savage cut above his left eye. He just couldn't carry on. And, you know, the rules of the tournament stated that he couldn't make a decision in favour of one boxer or the other unless it had gone four rounds. So yeah. they were pretty much forced to give a... Um, a Technical draw, I think. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, it was... I mean, it, poor old Josh Ryan was absolutely visibly upset, you know, mouthing I'm sorry to the Leeds fans, you know, nothing to worry about, but... It was a huge disappointment, and that's at the point where I thought, oh, God, is that Kaiser kind of Chiefs song going to be pathetic? But I think the, you know, the, the fans took it on the chin to use the pops in it and accepted it. There was a few boos at first, but I think they realised, you know, what could happen. It's very disappointing, but what a night it was, you know, and uh, I hope he gets – I hope there's a third um, – Third fight, and they get they get the two boxers get chance to do it somewhere. Maybe back at Helen Road. I don't know. If, yeah, you'd you like to see that, wouldn't you? Because through no fault of their own, or through it's not Josh Warrington's or Solara's fault either. But through no fault of their own, they're denied that kind of huge occasion. And boxing being what it is, it takes six, seven, eight months, ten months. You train, you prepare for that one night for those twelve rounds. So it's particularly hard on the boxers involved themselves. Yeah, it was a bad cut. I mean, boxing the corner men are great at patching up cuts that you think were going to cause the fight to be stopped. But if they hadn't stopped it then, all would have happened was Warrington would have gone after it. That's exactly what you do. And they'd have to have stopped it 30 seconds later, a minute later. They definitely wouldn't have made another round and another round with, with that kind of cut. Uh, but no, great to hear that it sounds like you enjoyed your experience at least. Yorkshire Dave in front of your, you know, your in your in your native city with a crowd thoroughly behind their hometown yeah. hero. I was uh, very lucky as a, a kid uh, growing up within earshot of, um, you know, of Headingley, and um, funnily enough, yesterday I uh, visited my two aunties who still live in the same house um, as they did from me from the sixties and the fifties when we were growing up, and they. Said, yeah, they could hear all the um, the antics going on from 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 their house, and uh, it is a fantastic venue. And uh, you know, we were all going to be there, weren't we, for for a game in this year's rugby league World Cup? Um, uh, again, was it New New Zealand? Uh, New Zealand match, I think, was going to be, but obviously that's got delayed until next year. But yeah, we must we must get you three guys down to uh, Edinburgh. It's one of the great sporting venues in, in the world. So, so it's, it's pretty much unique now. You know, I think going back, especially in Yorkshire, but there were other places, quite often you had this, this joint football and cricket or rugby and cricket grounds and Bramall Lane, Sheffield United, um, they still play at Bramall Lane, but previously next door was... Um, um, a cricket ground where Yorkshire used to play uh, some of their home games and likewise um, Bradford Park Avenue. I've been to both of them. I mean, Bradford Park Avenue was fantastic. You know, you could you could actually watch the, the football game from the main stand and just sort of peer back and you would see the cricket 
Wow. Cricket game going on, you know. Like. Two for the price of one. That would suit a Yorkshireman, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what it was, uh, what it was all about. Really. Great stuff. No, But while Josh Warrington was being denied a victory, there was no denying the golfers of Europe's Solheim Cup. Team Allen, that must have been performance to make a, a golfer like yourself proud. Yeah, yeah, fantastic entertainment. I'm a, well, you know I play golf, but I, I love the... I love the team events and the Ryder Cup uh, has, has grown exponentially really over the last 20 years as, a, as an international sporting event. And I guess in a lot of ways we have to thank Seve uh, for introducing the Europeans into what was a, a, a Great Britain and Ireland team against the, the Americans. But it's, it's brilliant to see the Solheim Cup uh, backing that up as well and they uh, Getting the same same sort of stature and recognition, and one of the interesting comments I heard on the on the commentary over the weekend was somebody saying that when the commentator said when they've gone to the Solheim Cup before, it's been eighty percent women watching, uh, whereas now it's um, like a 50-50 split. So that that's progress in in terms of sport. But I think the other great element of progress, and apologies if if on our baseball podcast we have any American listeners, but Europe has really started dominating these events. Now you can you can come and give us your views on on that because the the Americans in terms of world rankings uh, pretty much every time have got better players uh, than the Europeans. But there's something happens there that our lads and lassies manage to to take the trophy home. Um, and this time they're taking it home from the wonderfully named Inverness Golf Club in Toledo. Uh, I'm not quite sure why it's named Inverness Golf Club, but our architect was Donald Ross in, in the early 1900s. So Donald from Dornach, a uh, renowned golf course architect. Uh, Pinehurst would be his greatest uh, piece of work. Um, and, and the European team with their fancy golf bags, uh, did you happen to spot what was on the the bottom of their golf bags? If you, you possibly weren't watching, but the, they had a picture of the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, fantastic. Oh, brilliant. And, and, I thought it was going to be an advertisement for Sports Direct or something. <laughs> Change days, fortunately. I, I could tell a story about one of my friends who played on the European Tour 20, 30 years ago and... Um, he had a particularly good round on the Friday, so his mates knew he would be on TV on the sun on the the day after, um, and they put something rather inappropriate on the base of his bag, so he wouldn't know it was there. But when it was featured on TV, it would be there for all to see. Uh, so I'll, I'll he's he's a very successful coach these days, so I'll not I'll not name him. But it's uh, no, it was, it was great great sporting. Occasion, a good, great rookie performance from a young Irish girl, Leona Maguire, for the European team. Uh, played all five games, which is very unusual. I think she had four wins as well, including a, a fantastic win in the in, in the singles. Um, Toledo as well, interestingly, Pat Hurst, the, who's the baseball bit, Pat Hurst, the US captain, uh, to help advertise the event back in June. She threw out the first pitch. At, at a Toledo Mudhens game. I can't find video of it because there is a suggestion that she pitched a ball 
with a golf club uh, rather than actual pitching a baseball, which would have been would have been fair enough. But the the Mud Hens were actually well represented. It must be the major sports team in Toledo. But their their badge was on the caddies' shirts. Uh, the the badge, the logo, uh, was there on the back of the on a, on a lot of the billboards around the golf course. Uh, probably ultimately was frightened off by Nessie, so uh, and it was good good to see the European win captained by a, a Scott Katrina Matthew. A little bit of controversy, uh, whether you picked up on it or not. So Dave was talking about a rules incident there as well. But um, on the first day, uh, Nelly Corda, one of the famous Corda sisters, um, both in the world top 10, their brothers in the world top 30 playing tennis, and both their parents were, were very successful sports folk. But um, she had an eagle putt. Uh, and it seemed to hang on the edge of the hole, uh, and it wasn't obviously not going in. Uh, so uh, I think it was Madeleine Sagstrom, the European golfer, went and conceded the putt, picked it up, and threw it back. But what she hadn't done was wait the 10 seconds. Uh, so the rules official deemed that the ball had gone in the hole. Um, uh, Nelly Corda was saying it was out with her hands and the rules official had called it so it was nothing to do with her but the Solheim Cup and the Ryder Cup don't seem to manage to pass without a little bit of uh, uh, controversy uh, so uh, that was a that was when it possibly spurs the Europeans on especially when they're in an environment which is fairly raucous but obviously with no fans uh, and as much as a you, well, there were a handful of fans, but obviously we can't travel from Europe to get into the States. So uh, well done to the ladies. Uh, and I think it's in Spain in 2023. So, yeah, looking forward to that one. And the Ryder Cup's actually only a few weeks away as well. Oddly, because of the pandemic, we now have the Ryder Cup and the Solheim Cup in the same year. I think that's going to continue to 2023 uh, but then the Solheim Cup is only having a one-year gap before their next one, to, so as we have them in, in alternate years. So just a little bit of golf with a bit of baseball and a bit of uh, Inverness celebrity pitched in there as well. Well, 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 we will leave our Dingwall celebrity to have the last word on this week's episode of the Highland Bill Ben. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm.